0: Hi there, Akshaya. So here we are. We have successfully surmounted multiple challenges and poof, we are here.
1: Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me um, on your show. I really appreciate it.
0: How about you go ahead and ground our listeners in um, a little bit about your backstory, who you are, what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, My name is Akshaya Raman. I am a young adult author based out in the Bay Area, California.
0: So folks, yes, The Ivory Key, awesome book. And we're going to be talking about everything from world building today to this novel, which is your debut novel, and it has multiple POVs, uh, which for folks who don't um, know what POV means, that means point of views, which is like Wow. I sort of want to start there, to be honest, because writing multiple POVs is challenging in a unique way. I'm curious to know what your experience was with tackling that beast.
1: Yeah. So um, I have four points of view. They're all siblings, um, and they are all narrators. They don't share equal page time. Uh, There are some characters who are more prominent, and then some characters who have less page time, uh, at least in book one. And it was, it was definitely challenging, but it was also incredibly fun uh, to get to explore these different um, perspectives. What I personally find really interesting about writing multiple points of view is getting to see the world through slightly different filters. So each of the characters has a different relationship to the world, um, different relationship to each other. And so um, that's what I find the most interesting to sort of explore um, and see how their personalities and their perspectives affect
0: that. Well, so in a way, you were enjoying four unique stories and blending them together.
1: So the overall story is something that they all do together, but they all have their individual goals for why they might want to go on this quest. And so having each of their points of view was helpful in identifying what each of them wants and what they care about and how the things that they are trying to do might interfere with another character's goals.
0: Right. Of course. Because that is where all the fun comes in, all the crazy making. Absolutely. I believe I was in Goodreads, and I was taking a look at a bunch of different people's comments about The Ivory Key, because even though it's just now coming out, there are these wonderful things called advanced reading copies, Mm ARCs. And so, I mean, there are people who have already read this, and a lot of them were I think they were referring to like Indiana Jones or um, was that really cute movie, The Mummy, you know, where you just get people who like are literally on a quest. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about maybe what were some of the inspirations behind the story as it came to you. I mean, you birthed it. It's not like it's out there and you went and learned about it and wrote it up. You know, you created this because it is fantasy, right?
1: It is fantasy, yeah. And a lot of the quest movies um, that you mentioned were big influences for me, especially Indiana Jones was a really big thing. National Treasure. Um, oh, yeah. Even like the Tomb Raider movies. Mm-hmm. um, Those are like, you know, kinds of the things that I grew up with and I really loved Um, even things like Parts of the Caribbean. There are no pirates in my book, but like that sort of questy adventure story was really what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And that was a really big influence for when I sat down to write this book. So there is a quest element. Um, The ivory key is this mythical object. Um, So in this world... Uh, Magic is a physical resource. It's mined, it's put into objects, and that source of resource that they have is actually running out. And in order to find more, they uh, have to go on a quest to find the ivory key, which is rumored to unlock more sources of magic. And in order to first find the ivory key, they have to piece together a map and then from there, figure out where that leads, and then there's puzzles that they have to solve to try to um, to find this mythical object.
0: You know, I just realized this moment, sort of as I was listening to you, that this is like potentially actually a specific, I don't know, this is not a genre. What would this be called? Because all these different <laughs> quests can fall, they can fall into fantasy, they can fall into adventure, dystopia, whatever, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. What, what is this called? What, what category of writing does your book fall in?
1: That is a great question. I kind of just call it a fantasy adventure, which especially in young adult, there's not a ton of books like that out there. But there are a few, um, like The Gilded Wolves, for example, um, or We Hunt the Flame. Um, these are, I think, probably the closest to what I can sort of think of my book being um, where there is the fantasy element and there is magic, but there's also like the sort of adventure, treasure hunt, puzzle aspect as well.
0: Well, there's also like, I mean, Shadow and Bone, which a lot of people have heard about by Leigh Bardugo. I mean, that there's like, they go after the different animals, Mm -hmm. right? And then you've got, of course, I think the other one is, um, six of crows that actually yeah. has the multiple POV. And also there, is it six of crows where they actually are going to the ice court or is that the second mm-hmm. book? In the yeah, series? it is. That also was listed. I was noticing as a fantasy adventure. So that might be mm-hmm. the genre, but, um, I think a quest, you could be fantasy adventure and not have a quest, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, I'm actually going to go get my cat because he's meowing outside of my door right now. One of my friends um, once told me that having a cat is like just being a glorified door opener. And I have never stopped thinking about that. This was like five or six years ago that he told me this. And I've been thinking about it ever since.
0: Yep. I mean, I guess you could get around that if you created a whole bunch of like actual cat doors all over the place. The cat could Mm -hmm. go where he wanted to or she wanted to. But yeah, cats are... Pretty, pretty interesting. (laughs) Do you think that the quest idea is prominent, or is it actually sort of um, unique? Because I'm trying to think of the last quest book that I saw or read, and except for those by Lee Bardugo, nothing's jumping to mind.
1: Yeah, um, I think there's definitely a lot of variety, um, and I'm sure there's lots of books out there that have a quest element, even if it's not like a story that's centered around a big quest, especially in young adult fantasy. Well,
0: it might also be actually more prominent in fantasy than in some other genres, because like the Elfstones of Shannara, of course, they're going after the Elfstones. And um, yeah, was Brisinger is the third book in that book series written by some teenager about dragons. (laughs) I can't remember the name, but yeah. Yeah. Questing, questing. Um, If, I mean, I guess if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, it's all about questing, and that's a fantasy realm. Yeah. Interesting. So they also do this in middle grade, right? I mean, you, I'm not sure how old you were, but when my kids were much younger, there was the, these books that came out. I can't remember exactly who they were written by, but, um, oh, 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 his name. Ah, The Lightning Thief is the name
1: of the first book. Oh, the Rick Riordan book.
0: Yes.
1: Oh, my gosh. I love them.
0: Yeah. And those are questy, too. Yeah. Okay. Suddenly, I'm seeing quests everywhere. No kidding. I went from like, (laughs) that's rare, to I'm like, okay, they're as common as sand. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so cool. All right. Well, so the ivory key here. Everyone talks about your cover.
1: Seriously.
0: How happy zero to ten are you with this cover?
1: Like a twelve, uh-huh. it was exactly what I. I mean, I can't say I this is what I pictured because I didn't, but it was exactly what I wanted it to be. I think it really evokes what the book is about. Um, you know, when my publisher asked me what is something that you would like to see on the cover, and my only sort of request was, I would love architecture on the cover, and. I could not have seen how they were going to implement it, but I absolutely love the way that it came out. Um, and there's, oh my gosh, so many different elements of the cover that I really love. There's mm-hmm. temples on it, um, which is really um, important to me. It's important in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lotus flowers on it, which is also something um, that uh, is in the book. So there's a secret society, which is another thing that I absolutely love about the like subgenre, um, right, of, you know, like quests and treasure hunts and stuff. And there's usually like yeah. some <laughs> mysterious, <laughs> right. dangerous secret society that is like trying to stop, you know, the heroes from uncovering the treasure. Um, and I, I was really excited that I got to write one in this book, and it's called the Kamala Society. And Kamala actually means lotus, mm-hmm. and uh, so. Yeah, it was really cool that we get to have, like, lotus flowers on the cover, too, as a sort of subtle nod to the secret society. But, yeah, very... Yeah, no, absolutely. I love the cover.
0: Yeah, and the colors are so... I mean, you know, I have actually only been to India once, and literally it was just the airport. We were flying from Iceland through India to Bangkok. And so... I know nothing about India, and I'm an American. So therefore, the question is sort of what are my um, stereotypic expectations or what do I what do I see in my mind when I do think of India, given my lack of direct experience? And I have to say, the thing that always comes to mind, and I have friends who go there on a regular basis, is just color, 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 mm-hmm. color. And um, this is just so it's so brilliantly colorful and the colors work together in this way that allows them to be bright and muted at the same time. I'm actually a little confused about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, I specifically the word that you used in uh, brilliant, like I think that's really what I um, think of with this cover and I actually love how bright it is. And um, I think it also fits the story a little bit better because this is not a book that I wrote that is necessarily very dark or bloody or um, violent. It's very much, you know, it's, it's meant to be like a fun adventure book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that sense, too, I really love that the cover really complements uh, the story that I wrote.
0: So you're going for stakes, but not darkness.
1: Yeah, um, that's, I think that's a good way to, um, to put it. And, you know, there's, of course, there's darker themes in the book. There's a lot of discussion of death and grief, because mm-hmm. one of the things that happens uh, before the start of the book um, is actually uh, all four of the siblings have lost both of their parents. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely uh, a big sort of influence in the way that their parents have influenced them and raised them has affected how they sort of view the world and how they uh, decide what they're going to do there is a lot of that and it's also like a country that's like on the edge of war so there are some more serious themes woven in but at at its heart, I would say. I actually call it a family drama treasure hunt.
0: One thing I noticed in the Goodreads comments is that um, a lot of people felt like it was one of those books that you just couldn't put down. And they were like, I finished it in a day. Um, But that's not like you could read it in two hours or something. I mean, you know, they basically probably (laughs) spent their day cuddled up in a in a warm, cozy chair with multiple cups of hot chocolate or tea or whatever. But for our our listeners out there who have written themselves, world building, you have this interesting thing where you are able to take from an existing real world locations on this planet, you know, cultural imagery, different things you can borrow from those, but you're putting them into a completely fantastical world that you've created. I'm curious about, what the research process was that you went through, and both into delving into your own life history, your own memories and experiences, and then just going out in the world on the internet, whatever. How did you sort of pick and choose what you wanted to bring into your made up world?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. So world building for me really started with Sort of my own cultural touchstones and the things that I had grown up with um, from my family, um, from things that I'd experienced in my trips back to India, which I would do pretty frequently when I was younger. Um, either every year, or every other year, I would spend at least some amount of like summer vacation growing up um, visiting my family uh, in India. So. I really started with the things that I personally really loved. Um, so that for me was things like food. Um, I, India is very uh, regionally different. So mm-hmm. any state you go to, the language is different. The clothes are different. The food is different. I was really fortunate because I actually grew up um, being exposed to a lot of different cuisines within India itself. Um, My family, especially my mom, is a really big foodie. And so we would try a lot of different cuisines. Um, And so I really started with those kinds of things that felt like warm and comforting to me um, in building this world. And then from there, I really looked at other elements that I've always been really fascinated by um, historically. And one of the things was actually uh, architecture, specifically forts. So India has a lot of forts, like thousands of forts. And um, a lot of them actually have really cool, really unique history. And um, some of them actually have some really cool features to them that almost feel like magic, um, but are really just science and technology. And it's, So wild to think about the fact that people like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago had figured out how to do some things just by understanding math and science and engineering. Um, Can you give a couple of of examples? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my uh, favorite examples is actually the Golconda Fort. And this fort is, um, the thing that it's known for is that there's something called a clapping portico. So it's like an entrance area that is domed in a particular way. um, And if you stand under it and you clap, it Uh actually amplifies the sound and then transports it between buildings um, to the point where um, it can be heard half a mile away to like where like the king's room would be. And no way. Yeah, this is something that, like, you know, if you if you Google it, you can actually find um, videos of people going there and doing this, and then it shows you how the sound gets amplified, and it's really cool. But, so but, stuff but, like that.
0: But when it gets amplified, it's not like um, you're standing here and you clap, and then in all directions going out, it amplifies. It sounds like what you're saying is that it literally moves through the building, yeah. so at another point in the building, it'll be amplified but someone who's maybe ten feet away in a different direction just hears a normal clap sound.
1: Correct. Yeah. That wow. so was meant as like an alarm system, right. so that they could um, inform the king of like an intruder or something like that. Which, you know, for me, like looking at it, I was like, "That's really cool." And so that You're kind kidding. of that's was more what than. Me. That's
0: phenomenally <laughs> cool. That's so awesome. Oh my gosh. Okay, keep going.
1: Um, yeah, no, so that's really what um, kind of inspired me to start looking into more of the history of architecture and, you know, finding out some of these cool things. I almost feel like I cheated a little bit because I'm like, I took elements like this and kind of just said, oh, but it's just, it works because it's magic when, you know, in reality, it actually worked because of just science. Just
0: imagine the person or people who figured that out you know, how absolutely real their lives were hundreds or thousands of years ago. It's just so cool.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think there's also this notion that we have about the past and the level of technology we have today um, and looking at the past and saying, oh, well, they didn't have cars. They didn't have the internet. Therefore, um, their technology was, you know, much more, primitive but then you like actually look back (laughs) yeah and then you look back and you're like oh they actually had so many incredible technological advances that today we kind of take for granted but you know they didn't have the internet or like calculators to do this complicated math like they were doing it and they understood they had this sort of inherent understanding of physics and like the sciences in this way that allowed them to accomplish these incredible things that we take mm-hmm. for granted. But then, you know, you look at some of this architecture and um, especially in India, a lot of temples mm-hmm. were actually constructed, like that are still in use today that people can still go visit, were constructed hundreds and hundreds of years ago and they have survived and they're still really functional right. uh, in those respects.
0: Right. I mean, you know, what is that thing that happens if there's um some solar flare that hits the planet or there's like a, what is it, E-P something or other, you know, they talk about it's like a weapon too. It goes off and it just fries all the electronics. Think of it as a a bomb that goes off up in the atmosphere and suddenly everyone underneath it, it fries the electronics and nothing that's electronic works. Well, you know, where would we all be because we're so dependent upon electricity Mm. for all of our communication, for, you know, for so many things. Suddenly, how many of us would be like, oh, I only have one candle left in the house or... My house depends right. on electricity for cooking, heating water, and heating the house. And now I'm super cold because I don't have a wood burning stove. So, in a way, right. um, we may have really phenomenal technologies. But if you were in the White House and something crazy happened, or you're, you know, in the Capitol building and the electricity went out and all the walkie talkies stopped working, is there a? Can you run over here to a little doorway and? clap out a staccato sound that sends a message <laughs> to somebody in the White House that there's a danger? No, probably not. You know, electricity's out. Okay. you know, So in a way, right. you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that higher tech is better tech. It's just different right. tech. absolutely. Absolutely. For people growing up in what, what we call Western culture, I'm curious what it is that you think is perhaps most misunderstood about um, this whole other side of the planet, which is called the East. And I don't understand why we even have done this, given that I happen to be to the East of the East, because the planet's round. So I'm I'm a little curious what your thoughts are as you went through this process of preparing to write this book and doing your research.
1: Yeah. So when I sat down to write this book, I was really aware of the fact that I'm Indian American and, you know, I've spent most of my life in uh, California, which is where I grew up. And so for me, writing this book was not necessarily something that I set out to do in like an educational sense. It was more just making sense of my own world. And what I mean by that is I grew up like, I I mean, I read everything pretty much when I was younger, but Mm -hmm. I grew up reading and watching things um, like fantasy and adventure and things where people just got to go off and, you know, go on these wild adventures and explore places and encounter magic and fall in love. And when, I sat down to write my own stories, it felt somewhat inauthentic to me to not incorporate my own heritage and my own culture that I'd grown up in. Mm -hmm. So I basically just said, well, I want to write the kind of story that I grew up with, um, the kinds of stories that I love, but I want to do it in a world that is more familiar to me. Mm -hmm. And that was really my approach to it. Um, I hope that, you know, people reading my book can appreciate um, some of the, the I guess, the differences from what they'd be used to in terms of the clothes that are being worn or, you know, the food that's being eaten. But at its core, I still think it's very much almost like traditional, classic fantasy book.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like fantasy, when it draws from... How do I put this? Uh, years ago, I used to watch Star Trek. You've heard of Star Trek? Yeah, of course. You're not that young. Okay, good. <laughs> now, <I've, laughs> I, I, I don't make assumptions anymore. You know, oh, Gilligan's Island. And people give me a glazed-over look. I go, ah! Okay, so, <laughs> so you've seen Star Trek before. Right. Okay, good. So I remember thinking to myself... Star Trek, which is this trope that you're zooming around from planet to planet to planet. Every time you went to a planet, I'd be like, well, that is just sort of like a different part of planet Earth. You know, like each planet, each Mm -hmm. question they ran into, each problem they had to overcome or resolve, they were just real world elements on our own planet. And then they just went off and made an entire planet like that, which is fine. I'm not criticizing it. But what I, what I liked in a way was that I felt like I was getting to explore my real world through this, this fantasy trope, the way they had set that up. So, way, I've been interviewing a few people this year um, who have specifically drawn, some of them did historical fiction, but a lot of them it was fantasy, but they were drawing from China or they were drawing from Korea, you know, um, or in your case, drawing to a degree from the cultures and, and things from India. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I really appreciate the opportunity to go planet hopping, even though I'm sitting in my own living room, even though I'm reading a fantasy story, I am getting exposed to something that has some roots in a real part of the world that one day I might actually travel to. And I just really appreciate that, that you're, you're bringing that forward and allowing me to have those experiences.
1: Yeah, of course. And, you know, like what you were saying about this element of planet hopping, I think does also hold true because at the end of the day, this book that I've written is not historical. It's not really rooted in reality. It is still a fantasy book. And there are some things that I've sort of taken liberties with and said, okay, I want to explore this element, but in my own way. And then there's other elements, of course, where I was actively inspired by an actual setting and uh, things like that.
0: And isn't that exactly the fun of writing the story that you were talking about earlier?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always have that like fear that, you know, someone's going to read my book and say, okay, but like that's totally inaccurate. And in some, yeah. (laughs) You know, and like in some respects, like, yeah, there's, um, there are like, you know, certain things where I tried really hard to honor uh, the actual history. Um, and in some places it was just, you know, part of the story or like what I needed it to do that I was like, okay, I'm not going to really research this too much or mm-hmm. um, I'm going to sort of interpret it my own way um, for the type of story I'm trying to tell um, or like, you know, the it, the other influences I had because apart from my culture and apart from the books and stories I grew up with, there were also like other things that I really um, loved that weren't even like adventure things. Like another really big influence for me was the show The Originals, which is like the Vampire Diaries. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I love that show. I watched it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was actually a really big influence. My book has no vampires, but the thing that I really loved about the original that really mm-hmm. resonated for me was the idea of this family saying, always and forever, and saying, we're going to do whatever it takes to protect each other, and then kind of doing horrible things in the name of protection. Right. <laughs> um, which is always so fascinating to me. Um, I The thing that I really like about, I guess, any complicated relationship is that sort of the contradiction in like what you're sort of saying and what you're doing. Um, And so, yeah, that was a really big influence for the family drama aspect Mm -hmm. of my book and sort of exploring the sort of generational influences um, that can have on you as well. And the things that you're sort of taught and the things that you're expected to hold on to, or like what you perceive you're expected to hold on to um, and how that also plays a part in, how you're
0: navigating the world. Yeah, the impact of um, family expectation, in a way, on our lives. Yeah. But, it, I mean, obviously, you're not writing about India because you're not even on planet Earth in the story. You know, it's the Ivory right. Key, is in a completely different place. But it's it's interesting to me that, you know, I would say that for a period of time in this part of the world, a lot of books that got published had these automatic aspects to the story that were very much aligned, perhaps, with the European, you know, historical way of living. I mean, you know, Anne McCaffrey, who's one of my favorite authors mm-hmm. in the world, when she wrote about Pern, it draws upon sort of the European way of life, The even though she's on another planet somewhere else, right? Right. And, and that all went unmentioned. It was just sort of, like, assumed. It's the same idea. I was talking with... Um, who was I talking about this? Because it wasn't... Was it Marissa Meyer? Marissa Meyer has been doing some reimaginings of fairy tales. And <laughs> she also took fairy tales that had been based in, you know, the grim fairy tales or um, the other traditional European backgrounds. And she just sort of twisted them and gave them this futuristic, um, based in right. New Beijing. I mean, so... In a way, I, I just think it's interesting when I look at a book being sold here in the West and it has a flavor that's not traditional Western, that that stands out. Does yeah, that make definitely. sense?
1: And I, yeah, And I think that's one of the things that I particularly have appreciated over the last, you know, five, six, seven years um, that we've sort of been moving away from the expectation that fantasy automatically equates to, like, medieval England. Yes, and, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just that, like, questioning of, like, our base assumption for what a world, what a fantasy world should look like mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which that people, especially um, people who are uh, writing these books, infusing their own uh, cultures and their own um, upbringings, into these stories, how they can sort of play around with some of these classic tropes and um, make them different while still sort of honoring the genre and um, honoring the, the tropes and uh, the things that we associate automatically with these things.
0: We're expanding and we're broadening, and I think we're yeah. getting away from a culturally myopic Western viewpoint and we're just opening up the floodgates for all this other amazing stuff that happens on planet Earth to just flood on in and, you know, brighten up and enliven and expand our storytelling. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about Writer's Block Party. Yeah. Tell us what that's all about.
1: Yeah, so um, a few years ago, my critique partners and I actually decided that we were going to start a group blog. Um, it was really inspired by the fact that you know we had a we have a slack group in which we were already having some of these discussions um, about craft, um, about community, and so we decided to start writing some blog posts and putting them up. And it's been, oh my gosh, I feel like it's been three years now, three or four years, actually maybe more. Um, So yeah, it's, I mean, I'm biased obviously, but I think it's a really great resource. Um, We have a lot of posts about craft. We have a lot of posts about things like, uh, like publishing, like industry stuff, querying and, uh, you know, questions to ask agents um, when they might offer you representation. Yeah. We have a lot of really great posts on there. So it's,
0: written. It's not like audio, um, so like a podcast. It's just Oh, yeah, it's yeah, written. yeah.
1: It's, it's, just, it's just a blog. Um, yeah, okay. it's writersblockpartyblog.com, I believe.
0: Okay, cool. So, folks, by the way, this is a reminder, especially since some of you end up joining us partway through, or maybe you've been enjoying the show and you've arrived at the grocery store and you really want to get out of the car and head on in. So, just remember, you can go to marchtwisdale.com at any time and you go right there on the homepage, scroll down, Or you can go to the podcast link if you want, and you will see Akshaya Rahman's face and her name. When you click on it, it takes you to the show, and her bio is going to be there. And in that bio, can we make sure, Akshaya, that we have, like, the Writer's Block Party blog uh, link in there? All right, let's get that in your bio for sure. Because, I mean, you know, us writers, gosh golly, there's just so much to learn in this amazing adventure of our own lives, and we need all the support we can get.
1: Yes, absolutely, um, and this is something that I'm not affiliated with in any respect, but one of the reasons that we started this blog was because we actually looked at Publishing Crawl, which is another fantastic resource,
0: um,
1: and has so many posts like going back probably like 10 years now, uh-huh. um, and the publishing other... Uh, crawl.
0: You know what? I love that name because you're right. I am crawling towards publication.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. There have been lots and lots of different contributors over the years. Um, And the other sort of like writing resource that helped me a lot when I started out on my journey was actually Susan Dennard's website, And it's just SusanDenner.com and she has an incredible newsletter, an incredible resource for writers. Um, Again, there are posts that probably go back over 10 years. It's just a wealth of information on, uh, especially craft. Um, She's like someone who I turn to often when I'm stuck on something, um, or I'm trying to figure out how to understand why something I'm doing is not working, um, Mm -hmm. or like how to sort of fix it.
0: Yeah, no, totally, totally. You know, I, one of my favorite, since apparently this is the moment in the show where we're going to talk about all of our favorite writing resources, (laughs) one of my favorite writing resources is called the Manuscript Academy. Have you heard of them? Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. Not, you know, sometimes people haven't. And I'm like, really? Oh, let me tell you all about it. But um, so you already know about the Manuscript Academy. Have you heard their
1: podcast? I have not heard their podcast. I actually didn't know they had a podcast. But yeah, I've like definitely been on uh, the website and looked through um, all of the incredible resources that they have.
0: They, okay, so here's what's really cool about the Manuscript Academy is that, like I was mentioning earlier, I think they sort of you know, they cover like the back end, you know, what it's like Mm -hmm. to reach out to your agent, how to work with your editor, a lot of that stuff. But they all they they also do support. There's these like monthly get togethers with Zoom, of course. And those are really nice. I actually found my current beta reader through one of those. And the cool thing is that the podcast is free of well over 100 um, podcast things. So I would just throw on my little Bose headset and listen to them, Every time I went on a walk. But if you pay a little bit of money each month, you can join and have access to all their classes and other things. So it's nice as you listen to the podcast for a while and then you can get a sense of whether, okay, I want to gain more of what they offer. And then you can go ahead and decide if you want to actually get a membership. So I sort of like that two tier level. Yeah. So have you heard of Kathy Yardley? I have not. Oh, my goodness gracious. Kathy Yardley has a phenomenal set of books as well. that she I interviewed her back. It's January 6, 2019. And um, she has this incredible set of books that literally for an entire year. Can, I just wonderful. It's called Rock Your Writing. So that's actually really cool, too. So there we are raving about our favorite people in the world. Rock your writing like rock, like um, rock and roll rockyourwriting.com is where you can and she's just what can I say the books are tremendous content her voice because I get them as audiobooks is amazing she reads them herself and the wisdom in them is really really good especially if it's say for a woman writer you're getting that's really cool I'll have to check that out top of the list I would say as a Christmas gift or a valentine's gift or a birthday gift or a i was thinking of you gift for your fellow friend who's a writer (laughs) pretty much yeah all righty we only have so much time left i'm looking at our list of cool things we're going to talk about here let's talk a little bit about characters in the ivory key which is book one of a duology do you know how many people were writing in goodreads how much they are desperately waiting for book two. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, guys, book one hasn't actually come out yet because they're all responding <laughs> to an ARC. And the the torture of the ARC, right? So um, your characters, do you have a favorite?
1: That is a very interesting question to me always because I kind of feel like all of my characters kind of have a little bit of me in them. So oh. it's very hard for me to pick a favorite character um, who's like a point of view I definitely have a few favorite side characters but I'm actually not going to answer the question that you asked and instead answer which character I find easiest to write
0: Okay, Um, yes please do
1: so like by you know by default I kind of feel like you know the characters that give me the least amount of trouble are always the ones that I'm like oh I like you because this is easy for me to work with and that for me is is one of the boys Caleb in book one he actually doesn't have a huge number of chapters um he's a character who's introduced very early but um he has actually uh, been imprisoned so Mm -hmm. um it's not until a little bit later in the story um that he actually has stuff that he can do um So it's introduced, like, I want to say maybe about a third of the way into the book is when he gets his own first point of view chapter, even though you meet him, um, like, way in the beginning of the book. So, um, yeah, he is probably the easiest one for me to write. um, When I kind of decide what I'm going to do with his chapters, I sit down and I kind of write them. And for the most part, they come out pretty clean, um, you know, just... (laughs) Most of the work that I have to do with his chapters is making sure that I'm on the right track and then clean up the language a little bit um, compared to some of my other characters where I'm like, I write a chapter and then I throw it out and I write another chapter and I throw it out and I write another chapter and I'm like, what are you doing? Ouch. Yeah,
0: you know, if you were to think about everything you've written and then what percentage of everything you've written has actually gotten into this book between my hands, what percentage do you think actually makes it into the, the final product?
1: I feel like it's a shockingly low number, um, probably lower than I want to think. Um, the So the truth is, um, I actually started writing this book way back in 2015, I want to say, or 20, 2016, I think. So um, in that time, I actually ended up writing several entire drafts that just didn't work for various reasons. So I've probably thrown out three or four times the amount of words that are actually in the book um, before I figured out exactly what needed to happen and what uh, needed to stay um, in the story. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of versions, like a lot of older versions of the book that are just Slightly different, um, mm-hmm. but the core of it never really changed. But like the execution of it, what some of the characters were doing. Um, how do you how do you like endure
0: that. that? I mean, like like for some uh, of clearly? us. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, some of it's probably the. There was one entire. So I've written my first book of my four book series um, is currently in the middle of its sixth complete revision. And I think I hit after revision three, where I had made some significant changes to the plot and realized I didn't like them, and that I was going to go back to the more original Mm -hmm. plot because it just worked a lot better. I was so devastated. Is a little bit too strong of a word? So think sub devastated. I don't know. Devastated.
1: Devastation is
0: app. Yeah, and I literally, I think, like, I went a whole year just like. I just couldn't go there because every time I went to write, all I felt like was, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste something I have to throw away. If I'm not really sure that what I'm writing right now is what I want to be writing, then then, Mm -hmm. and then I would just stop and I would just stop and I would just stop. It was, it was awful. That feeling that you're just wasting your time. How do you deal with that?
1: Um, That is a great question. I actually find that very relatable because there were multiple moments over like, you know, the four and a half to five years that I wrote and rewrote and rewrote this book where I felt the same way, where I kind of felt like I wanted to give up and um, times when I did in fact give up. And one of the things that did really help was taking that time away almost like counterintuitively, like stepping away from it kind of not only gave me perspective about the story, but also sort of reaffirmed that I really do love this book and I wanted to keep trying again, try to get it right. And the other thing that really helped was having some, having like a really great support system um, and my critique partners who were so supportive and really helpful in sort of helping me maintain that perspective and also like commiserating because, you know, many of us have those experiences where we write books and they don't come out right um, the first time or the second or the third time. And um, it was really helpful to have that support system and to have other people say, this is This does not mean that you're a bad writer. This does not mean anything beyond the fact that you're still figuring out how to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And that was really helpful for me to keep that in mind and say, okay, I'm doing this because I love the story and I love writing. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy the entire time. It doesn't mean that it's going to be fun every day, but that it's, you know, like one step at a time kind of thing. That's always the way that like, when I look back, I'm like, I don't really know how I did that. But the way that I did that was even the days when it was really hard, I was like, I'm only going to work on this one scene or this one chapter, just take one step forward that feels more right than it did before. And at the end of it, you have a book.
0: Well, the interesting thing is that it's like, the writing I did like in that version three, for example, and for all of us, when we write something that doesn't end up making it into the final draft, I think a lot of times we're actually enjoying it at the moment. We actually like, what yeah. we create, it's not that it's unpleasant. It's just that it's one of those things where maybe to be healthy and effective and successful or to achieve the end goal, we have to actually really embrace the process and not only yeah. view the end as the confirmation that everything else was worth it. If we, absolutely, you know, we throw a bunch of stuff into the, into a, a the recycling that doesn't make it into the next draft. But if we enjoyed ourselves while we were writing it, we can still remember it and see it. And it was fun, even though it didn't quote make the cut. Well, then if that's something that we actually embrace, then we're going to enjoy the life, the writing life better.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm a very firm believer that no writing is ever wasted. It's all, you know, part of the process. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the detours that I took were not necessarily the right story beats, but they taught me something about writing. There's always moments. I'm also like a really big advocate of like never throwing anything away literally. Um, (laughs) So there's always like, you know, little moments that I can go back and recycle, whether it's like, a few paragraphs or a few sentences that I'm going to put in or an idea that I had for something that just didn't work in that book, but maybe I could put it into a different book. Um, Mm -hmm. There were things that I tried really hard to make work in book one that just never worked. And it felt, you know, kind of forced because I knew I was putting it in because I really wanted to like go to a particular setting or something like that, that Mm -hmm. just really need to happen. But now I get to put that into book two and it makes perfect sense for where it's going to go in book two so, you know, things like that where, like, the things that you try are never wasted, and it's never that the the process was bad. It just is, you know, the steps that you sort of have to take to get to where you need to go, and those steps might actually have, like, a longer-lasting, um, like, effect than you think in the moment.
0: Right. They're, they're still on the trajectory to their, their useful yeah. end moment. I I haven't actually ever, like you say, I haven't actually ever really thrown anything away. It's more like you create yeah. the folder and you throw a whole bunch of stuff in there and then you label yep. it, you know, the old stuff. <laughs> 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 and then you put it inside another folder and then you make a new folder and it's like, okay, the ghost Swords yeah. 2021, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then, Yeah, But I find that when I go back and I read things that, totally are not going to make it into this current um, version. Um, I find that the farther you get away from it, the better it reads. Gosh, golly. Yes. And you're like, well, that was actually great. Why didn't I keep that? Yeah, it's cool too.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's also uh, something, like, I would actually say that was one of the biggest challenges for me of working on this book for so many years was the fact that I was so close to it that, like, I couldn't really tell is this good or is this um, just that I've been, you know, staring at this book for so many months and I can't really tell anymore. Right. Yes. You know, it's it's hard to know that. Um, How did your editor help you?
0: How did your editor help you with that?
1: Um, My editor has definitely been really um, like good about, you know, reminding me of like the sort of bigger picture um, which is something I always struggle with because I get so caught up in the details and I get caught up and I really want to do this thing how can I best do it and um, you know any sort of external perspective whether that's a critique partner or my agent or my editor are always really really valuable because they don't see all of the little bits and pieces that in my mind, were things that I tried to do and failed at doing, but for them, they're just seeing what is on the page, and they're able to interpret that and say, okay, this is actually working, or I don't quite understand this, you know...
0: Oh, my god!
1: Or, like, what what this serves. And then I can sort of look at it and say, oh, okay, so whatever I tried to do, I didn't actually do a good job at doing. So let me think about how to communicate that better. Oh,
0: you're completely right. I love how you explained that, that they are not distracted by all the things in your head that you were trying to do. Right. They're just responding to what's on the page, of course. And, like, we all know that. But, you know, I mean, really, like, you know, <laughs> there's this one scene I have, and um, it's basically Chapter 2, of um, my novel and it's just this little farm scene and it's fairly short blip you know brief thing it's sort of showing a little bit about the um, mm-hmm. primary characters you know status quo life at the moment prior to what's going to happen the inciting incident and you know in my mind I've written this five times and at one point I was going to have a focus on the garden and at one point I thought it would be valuable to talk about you know the baby sheep because I wanted to give the character some some empathy in the eyes of the reader and another point I was like oh, I'm just going to throw my favorite chicken in there cuz my son'll get a kick out of it you know and there's all these different thoughts I have and I want it to look right. this way and that way and blah, blah 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 which to me when I read it right. you're sitting there going huge giant list of 39 things you want to do in these you know four pages have I done them yeah. but you hand it to your beta reader they read the four pages and they're like oh I totally get boom 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 and they're just happy yeah. because they don't know that there's 36 yes. things that didn't happen, which to me feels like a lack or a gap, but to them they're oblivious. Yeah. So they're just enjoying the top three that actually happened. That is such a brilliant reminder. Thank you.
1: I mean, it's a reminder that I have to tell myself all the time. Um, this is actually something that um, one of my critique partners pointed out to me about a year ago when I was doing my very last round of revisions and um, Right as we were heading into copy edits, which is like the final uh, round of edits that you do. And I was kind of worried about all of these things that I had tried to do and that I maybe hadn't accomplished. And it was just such a great reminder um, when um, when my friend told me this uh, and that's something I've really held on to uh, when as I've been working on book two to say, OK, you know, I'm looking at this from a completely different perspective than a reader is going to be looking at it. And it it's helped me put less pressure on a particular um, chapter. And it's also allowed me to trust other people more Um like, my editor, my critique partner, when they say this is working, Mm -hmm. Um, this makes sense to me, rather than, you know, saying, oh, but, like, I actually tried to do 10 other things here that didn't make it onto the page, (laughs) and therefore this chapter is a, you know, is is a failure, and um, rather than, uh, yeah, like, you know, sort of holding on to that and saying, I'm going to rewrite this, um, it's been very helpful for me to remind myself of that, like, what I'm seeing is not what somebody else is going to be seeing,
0: because I think it's possible that the writers oftentimes want to do more than you can actually do in 93,000 words. Yeah. We want to do 300,000 words worth of awesomeness <laughs> in 90,000 words. If you wrote the book it was like, I can, t- I am going to have the class and I will teach you how to get 300,000 words of amazingness into 90,000 words oh my gosh, so many people around the planet would sign up for that class.
1: Yeah, I would. I would sign up for that in a heartbeat because, yeah, I think that's what it is because there's so many things that we want to do in a particular scene because, you know, going back to something we very briefly touched on earlier um, with the pacing, um, Mm -hmm. the biggest sort of thing that I have learned about writing a well-paced book is that your chapter has to do multiple things like you can't have a scene devoted to character development and then a scene devoted to plot and then a scene devoted to description like all three of those things need to happen at the same time where you're furthering the plot while also doing character interactions and character development and also describing this world from like their unique perspective and their unique voice and doing all of that Mm Means that you're juggling so many different things within a particular chapter, and so anything that like feels underdeveloped in a sense um, always feels like, oh, but I didn't do a good enough job because because I was so focused on the character development here, I didn't spend as much time on on the setting, for example, mm-hmm. and you know, that's one of those things where you again like you see the scenes and you see the ways in which you try to put it together and it didn't work or, you know, it feels like I could have done more here, whereas again, like your reader is only reading what's on the page and saying, Oh wow, that's really cool and whatever study elements are there, like that's a really cool place, um or whatever it is. Well I think And that's that... always like helpful for me to remember. Yeah. And the one thing that I
0: That made a big difference for me and gave me a little bit of confidence. And then unfortunately we're going to be out of time. But um, the one thing that that helped me that I think uh, you might resonate with was that moment when I realized that I really could trust my reader to be a partner in creating the story. And that like I started to really realize, you know, I could read four sentences that someone wrote about their story and maybe only one sentence is linked at all to sort of like the physical setting of the situation. But I would notice that my brain would just take that and then pull up all, you know, the type of the trees, the color of the sky, the color of the grass, you know, what the what the path yeah. looks like, all this stuff would get supplemented by my mind. And I would realize that if there were 10 readers of those four sentences, and then they could, you know, describe what they saw to one of those people who works for the police department who will draw a sketch for you, all 10 of those sketches would be completely different, but all 10 yeah. of those readers would be completely happy. Absolutely. So that, that sense of partnership with our reader allows us to take a bit of a, of a we don't have to hold their hand quite so much, and we can, we can trust them Definitely. more. Yeah, yeah, there's that too.
1: Definitely.
0: Oh, my goodness gracious. It's so much fun to talk with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation, and I really love that we were able to sort of touch on so many different topics.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so everyone, The Ivory Key by Akshaya Raman. And if you go to marchtwisdale.com, you will go ahead and see her on the homepage, and there will be a bio that will have some links to some extra places. Thank you again for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.